0: Marshall and Sager here. Welcome back to the realignment. So this week, we have another Q&A episode. We were going to wait a little longer for doing one of these, but we literally got so many questions after our Brett Weinstein episode that we just had to sort of tee this up. We are sorry if we did not get to your question, going to make sure to spread these out moving forward the right way.
1: A reminder of how this works, if you could just help us out, scroll down to the bottom of that Apple Podcast app and hit five stars. We've currently got 878 Apple Podcast 5 Star Ratings, thanks to all of you beautiful, beautiful people out there. Just as a reminder, once we hit a 1,000, we will stop begging you for ratings. So you have an incentive to help us out here, folks. And after we hit that 1,000, that doesn't mean we're going to stop taking questions. However, if you leave a 5 Star Review, if you take a screenshot and you send it into realignmentpod at gmail.com, or if you leave your question in a written 5 Star Review on the Apple page. We will answer it right here on the air, which takes us in, Marshall. What do we got? Right
0: before we jump into this, a quick shout out to the Lincoln Network, who's done the awesome work of hosting and supporting this podcast. We really appreciate it. We are almost a month out from the Reboot 2020 conference. Have a really incredibly awesome lineup, so be sure to go to rebootconference.org to get your free tickets. So, Reading into our first question from Wes Maximus. We're going to try to read the Apple podcast nicknames. Thank you to those (laughs) of you who came up with creative ones. Question for the pod. Do you think public debate on Twitter represents how most of the country feels? To what degree should the Twitterverse be used to determine public sentiment? What do you think, Sagar?
1: Great question. Uh, Something that we actually talk a lot about. A lot. No, it absolutely should not be representative of how the most of the country feels. But What is Twitter a tool for and useful for? I think it is most useful for discerning how elites are feeling about certain topics. And so it's actually not even really like the non blue checks. Sorry to all the non blue checks out there. But what I'm really most fascinated by is to see the people with large followings, to see the people who are elite journalists, who are CEOs, who are engaged like in the discourse, so to speak, how they're reacting and and thinking about certain things. Just, you know, as somebody who's kind of an anti anti-elitist that's actually very helpful to me i can see narratives kind of craft in real time and i can kind of assess about how things are going and personally just like the way that i use twitter it's more just like a fun way not even of necessarily putting information out there but of testing assumptions and theses and of course some good trolling every once in a while what do you think marshall
0: Yeah, well, Sagar, if you're an anti-elitist, I'm sure all of your followers and me especially would appreciate you giving up your blue check to those (laughs) of us needy people with only 2,500 followers. So let's sort of be sure to spread the love if we're (laughs) going to embrace egalitarian egalitarian (laughs) thought. But no, so to the question, I think the country at large, no, but the thing that I really enjoy about Twitter is it actually does a great job at surfacing different communities. So, for example... Populist nationalist Twitter is really interesting. There's a lot of really interesting people who are talking there. New York Times Twitter is interesting. Venture Capital Twitter, Tech Twitter, Socialist Twitter. There's Chapo Twitter. There's always different sort of communities there. So if you you sort of use Twitter for sort of exposing it to sort of different sort of spaces, I definitely think that could itself be useful. But no, I don't think that there's this idea that the Twitter engagement actually means something. And when, to quickly add on to this, I think what the person is sort of getting at and really matters are do the sort of Twitter mobs or Twitter fights sort of matter. So when you have these situations where someone writes something or says something sort of controversial, and then there's some sort of mass pile on, I think when institutions or employers should really think about that's a Twitter thing that's happening, that's not necessarily the whole public. That's sort of the thing that plays into the cancel culture debate.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And once again, I mean, whenever it comes to that Twitter mob and all that, that's really an intra-elite discussion, which is why I think we should all be interested in what's going on on Twitter, just because of how much of impact it has on all of our lives and about how how it impacts the thinking of the people who control so much of our society. Okay, next question here. Do you think a multiracial, gender-blind party for working-class middle America makes sense? These guys appear to as well, and I like it. Keep it up. What do you think, Marshall?
0: Uh, old Woodshed Sager. Be sure to read everyone's. Oh, right, right. Old very important. I got the accent on that wrong, definitely. But these nicknames are very key. I actually don't think that any of that will come to pass. What are you sort of talking about that you're talking about a multiracial gender blind party for the working class? That's not a party that could actually win elections. I mean, think about it. The whole thing that Sagar and I have consistently been stressing on this podcast the past several months is is this idea that parties are just coalitions of people. So the Democratic Party is a coalition of black and brown people in the South, upper middle class suburbanites, people who went to graduate school etc, etc, etc. The Republican Party has social conservatives. They have, or at least formerly had, sort of neocon war hawks. That's a coalition. So just as it wouldn't make any sense for someone on the Republican side to say, hey, let's form a party for people who think the war in Iraq was a good idea, or on the Democratic side, like, let's make a party that's for people in Wall Street. That isn't how politics works. Politics is a coalition. So if you are someone who does like the idea, the very correct and important idea of a party that's multiracial, Um, unbiased against gender and focus on the working class, then you should take that coalition of people and use that coalition to influence either parties because if we sort of look at who determines who gets elected in this country, it's really the people in that sort of cohort. These are people who throughout our history have, for example, gone from Ronald Reagan in the 80s, but then switched to Bill Clinton and then went to George W. Bush and then went to Obama and then went to Trump. So using the power your coalition has is way more important than starting a small party that wouldn't affect anything. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I I think that, no, I think that's right which is that look i mean trying to lock yourselves into any one monolithic group is actually not really politically effective it's about building coalitions and it's about adding coalitions and about using those coalitions to accomplish things with political power so one of the things that you know bothers me the most right now is that a multiracial, gender blind working class americans by and large don't vote they are not very well represented. There are a lot of them, if we can refer back to one of my favorite studies, the Knight Foundation's 100 Million Americans Project, you can actually see that non-voters who are multiracial, who are largely disproportionately working class, that they don't vote. And they're actually, if they were to vote, would they would vote for both parties. So it's not about a one-party system. It's not about trying to take one party and making it a party of just one group. What it is... Is about expanding the electorate such that you can add on to people who already agree with you and then use that to wield political power. So, no one party, you know, just like a working class party wouldn't particularly make sense in a two-party system. What it is is you want to get as many of those as possible to come in to agree with you. I think, and as you all know, my political thesis is this is the greatest political opportunity of the century just sitting, waiting out there with so many millions of Americans eligible to vote that don't vote. And then you can bring them in and you can represent their needs at the table. Because America is all about coalitions and compromise. I know this isn't a sexy answer. A lot of people actually don't want to hear it. But- There's no such thing as just like coming in and getting your way. That's not what the Senate is designed to do or the presidency or the House of Representatives. America is about bringing together representative coalitions and then hammering out their differences at the table and coming up with something. The problem as I see it right now, and I assume Marshall would agree with me, is that those working class Americans have essentially not no seat at the table, but as close to no as possible. So it's just all about increasing balance within the system.
0: Yeah, and to build on that, the key thing here is we've remarked about the fact that we get so many questions, the real subtext of which is basically we need a third party. That's what this question is sort of coming out of. And the thing that I just sort of noticed, a friend and I were talking is he basically says what's driving these questions is a deep distaste with the aesthetics of both parties. So people who sort of are in this cohort who are identified with this idea don't like Democrats, they don't really like Republicans. And I think the flaw that's happening here is that they're sort of seeing the parties as just these static things. So the Democratic Party is this DNC that meets near Capitol Hill you don't like. Same thing with the Republican Party when if we think of yourself as a coalition, if you brought in, let's say half of those, let's just be fair and divide 50-50 the 100 million Americans that don't sort of vote. If you brought in those cohorts, both parties would look really different. And the way you thought about those parties would look different the same way too. So that party would not be a neoliberal party if you're talking about the Democrats. And it would not be a corporatist Wall Street party if you're talking about the Republicans. So really thinking about the idea of addition is really key here. So on to our next question. This is from Floridian999. With millennials and Gen Z having only a small number of traditional social conservatives, do you believe that the Republican Party could truly change its base to grasp a sizable portion of the younger generations? From my anecdotal experience, the layman 20-something has accepted the Republicans are racist, sexist, etc. attack so easily that it would be very difficult to fight against such an ingrained narrative. What do you think, Sagar?
1: Well, I'm just going to reference your previous answer to the question, which is that, yeah, I mean, if you look at the Republican Party today and you imagine and project it out 30 years, then maybe you would be right. But that's not how political parties work. They are representative of shifting coalitions and issues over time. So I would say, look, the way that we define social conservatism, the way we look at social conservatism, what will be considered socially conservative in 25 years from now is really important to add to this conversation because— I actually think that if you were to look at this and you were to say, let's say that this is a socially conservative value. I actually think it is in contemporary kind of elite discourse, which is that prioritization of the American family and ensuring that more people can get married and have more children. That's a pretty controversial idea. You can ask Matt Iglesias, who wrote a book called One Billion Americans, was actually vilified by a lot of the professional left for it. And so what I would say is that that might be a socially conservative position in the future. And if you go and you were to look at Gen Z and you were to say, okay, do you want to have kids and get married? Overwhelmingly, the answer would be yes. So what does that mean? What I'm trying to get at here is that trying to look at future parties through the lens of where we are right now is just not a particularly useful exercise, and it almost always fails. You can ask... James Carville, whenever he was like, oh, 40 more years of rule in 2008, before the Republicans came and took over in 2010, and then won the 2016 election. You can ask people who, when Ronald Reagan won the presidency, said that a Democrat would never rule America again. And then Bill Clinton came along, and they ruled the country for quite a long time. Oh, and by the way, a Republican has only won the popular vote. What is it, Marshall? What, seven? One out of eight times in the last... Last well, I, think it's, popular popular get, I think it's like two or
0: seven. It's one or seven. One of those. It's things.
1: either one or I think it's one out of seven times in the last national popular vote election. So again, it's like trying to use these things as benchmarks or where things are going to be in the future. It's just not particularly useful. I think the axis through which we discuss what social conservatism is and what it means to be socially conservative is just going to shift so dramatically over time. What do you think, Marshall?
0: Well, I'm going to mix things up a bit because you actually gave an interesting answer that I think a lot of people are going to want to get more clarity on. So when you're talking about this idea that Matt Iglesias got a lot of pushback for saying we should have pro-family policies encourage those sort of things, blah, 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 right? Like that makes a lot of sense, you know, to our earlier point about Twitter not being real life. We definitely saw that discourse on Twitter. Mm. But the question that's interesting for me, though, is that. Obviously, if you were to talk to a lot of Republicans either in office or sort of across the country, there would be an endorsement of that statement about pro-family policy. But if we actually got to the policy perspectives, right? Like, is it really true that like most Republicans are fine with the examples of the policies that Matt Iglesias is talking about? So Iglesias is talking about paid family sick leave. He's talking about increasing the child tax credit. He's talking about various forms of sort of pro-family entitlement programs in many ways would sort of help those things. The thing that I would push back on your answer, Sagar, is that rhetorically, I definitely agree that the Democrats won't think that way. But I think what we're seeing, and this is where a lot of frustration on the populist right side comes from, is that if you actually put pedal to the metal, though, the Republican Party isn't there from a policy perspective. I totally perspective. agree with
1: you. I'm not even claiming right now that the Republican Party is the incarnation of what I'm talking about here. There was actually a great observation, I can't even remember who made this, which is that the way we talk about social issues on the right is still captured by libertarianism. What is it all about? It's pro-life and it's pro-gun. That's the only way we talk about it, and which are both fundamentally kind of libertarian in their outlook. Whenever it comes to anything that concerns economic issues or about structures, that's something that the right never knows how to talk about. Like families, like the ways through which we produce families, where the economic incentives of creating family, making sure you can provide for your family. All that stuff goes completely out of the window. So look, yeah, I'll say it. I think most Republicans are full of shit whenever they claim that they are pro-family and they vote for the tax policy that they prefer. And they are much, it's much easier to cling to libertarian social values which have been beaten into you, kind of into your consciousness as the only social values that matter. And I think that if we're going to talk about social conservatism, we need to dramatically broaden that definition and, of course, actually live up to what that means. Because there's no world through which you should be able to vote against paid family leave and call yourself pro-family.
0: And what's so interesting about that is—and that gets to what we're talking about here, which is that the issues that are at hand— Change. So part of the reason why I think the Republican Party really struggles with young voters isn't just sort of the social issues. Right. It's not we're not coming out here saying if the Republican Party wants to win elections, they need to become super pro LGBTQ, super pro like gay marriage, pro choice. Like that's not why most people are going to vote for the Republican Party. Those are real coalitions. But the thing that we're talking about is the idea that the Republican Party's rhetoric is too much steeped in the 1980s. So it's this sort of idea, you know, that it's focused on low taxes, that it's focused on the idea that big government is the thing a lot of people sort of fear. But if you're looking at the issues that a lot of millennial voters actually care about, whether it's healthcare college, these sort of forward-thinking issues, those are issues that the Republican Party has not done a particularly good job of actually addressing. So as the Republican Party, by math, right, like people will age out of cohorts, Gen Xers and millennials get into power, they're going to have to address these issues more, which will make it more relevant to people. Next question.
1: Okay, next question. Do you plan on bringing in more controversial voices for conversations? Considering this is a respectful, level-headed show, it would make for interesting discourse to see somebody like Milo Yiannopoulos or Gavin McInnes. Maybe not either of them specifically, but someone in that category of borderline shock jockey. That question is from Gauz B. What do you say, Marshall? Gauz, that is a
0: actually a very helpful question. I, I, By the way, I appreciate when people ask us questions about how we frame the show and what we're sort of trying to do here because it helps us think seriously. About, hey, like, what are we trying to do? Like, we're doing this two times a week for the foreseeable future. So useful is this is useful when it comes to our perspective. But no, to the actual question, I'm not inherently opposed to bringing on a person who said controversial things. What I will say though is that I am very rigorous with sort of thinking, is this conversation of value. The sort of idea behind this podcast and the idea behind everything that Sagar and I do moving forward is that we're actually giving people value. Like the questions and the feedback I love the most is when someone says, hey, like you helped me think about student loans in a different way or hey, you made me understand my cousin who disagrees with me is sort of a better way. My favorite thing is I got a text from someone who said, Hey, I bought Michael Lynn's book about pluralism because you guys talked about it. It made me feel really hopeful. So if we could have a conversation like that with someone controversial, that's great. Let's do it. I'll defend that. But the one thing that I wouldn't want to do is sort of just have a controversial conversation for the sort of sake of it, right? Like we're not exactly free speech, absolutists, like heterodox edgy dudes, because that's sort of boring and played out. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I'm basically the same. Look, I mean, I have people who beg to come on all the time, not just here, but also on Rising. And usually I have to think about you guys. I have to think about my listeners, which is what are you going to get out of this? Most of the time, people who are controversial and all of this, they don't actually want to provide value. What they want is for me and Marshall to try and take them down and then for them to try and own us. Or they want to use it as a platform in order to denounce whoever is supposedly out to get them. So, look, if they have something legitimate to say, if we want to have a real discussion around ideas and assumptions and challenge and all of that without a lot of name-calling, without some, like, idiot gotcha stuff. I mean, you guys know me, and you know this podcast. I don't do gotcha interviews. I see no value in them. They're so fundamentally boring and we're all conditioned for it on cable news i mean if you really want to interrogate somebody then it needs to be you know an hour and a half two hours and respectful conversation but nine out of ten times whenever it comes to these things they are really not interested in that they are actually much more interested in kind of the the shock jock narrative and the shock jock character it depends very much on a format of which many of these people claim to hate, but which they secretly love because they get to play a paradigm and a character which allows them to seem as victims. So, look, I'm you know I'm not I'm not going to say I'm a free speech absolutist, but I'll pretty much talk to anybody. If you guys have suggestions, you can send in an email, and we'll take a look at, at who that guest is. And but just remember, my first thought, and I think Marshall's too. It's about you. It's about the listeners. I want to add value to your lives and add value to the way that you're able to think. And if I'm not able to do that through a conversation, I don't think I can do that, then we're just not going to do
0: it. Yeah, my general attitude on this is Sagar and I are basically sitting down with someone interesting and we get to talk to them. So if we get to have an actual conversation, we're going to do it. But just to put a pin in this to Sagar's sort of point, you know, before I was doing this podcast, I worked at PBS and television. And what you actually find out for a lot of people is that they're not actually interested in an actual conversation. Uh, And that's the set piece point there. And we're gonna avoid doing that both for your uh, enjoyment and for our own personal, not wanting to end ourselves (laughs) after it's over. So next question, this is from Vladia A. I would love, it's not really even a question, it's more of a statement, but I think this is a good promotion opportunity. I would love to have this conversation in video form. What's the deal there, Sagar?
1: Yeah, we had to put pause on the video front just for some technical reasons over here on our end, but they will be coming to you very shortly. I would only say, is it Vlad? Yeah, Vladia A., please stay tuned. Uh, We will get there.
0: And a quick point, the videos that we've uploaded were up until last week. So we have over 10 different videos. We've got Andrew Yang, Crystal Ball, Zed Jelani, Oren Cass. So there's a lot of great stuff there, and we're looking forward to coming back to you all soon.
1: Okay, next question: Is it just me, or is the up-and-coming CCP/PRC (PRC being the People's Republic of China) going to be the story of the 2020 decade? They are on a long-term trajectory. Our near, our quarterly nearsightedness can't be, can't see the forest because of the trees. This is from Limo Beans. What do you say, Marshall?
0: So, Limo Beans, thank you for asking this question. I'll answer it in two parts. Part one: Yes. The rise of China is the number one story of this decade. It's the story that I think is most misunderstood and sort of both sides of the aisle in terms of understanding how truly paradigm shifting it is. And I'd also say that, let's say in a world where President Trump loses re-election, China and the way he's handled the issue is probably going to be the one thing the historically is going to sort of be on the good side of his ledger. Historians are probably going to say that the one true thing that Trump accomplished that isn't going to be overturned by a Joe Biden, by a Mayor Pete, by a Kamala Harris, is going to be shifting the orientation in American po- foreign policy against China. Like, it's 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 impossible to understate how much before 2015, and Sagar and I grew up in this, mm-hmm. so we're not pretending we were prescient or anything, but how much the assumption with China was that this this is a good thing this is an inevitable thing and trump will really change that the thing that i will push back though in your question is this idea that um which actually frankly to borrow terms from the left this actually like orientalist idea that you know the um chinese are sort of long seeing and could see a thousand years into the future and they play chinese checkers and they play chess and we're just playing checkers uh. that's actually i think that's mostly bs um the reason why the Chinese could, for example, play for the long term is they have an authoritarian system, right? When there's only – when when all you have – when the people who have decision-making power in a society are a authoritarian political party, obviously you could do a bunch of sort of things. If Marshall – sorry, if Sagar and I were in charge of the United States, like right, we could obviously do all sorts of long-term planning. And that wouldn't inherently mean that we were wise. That wouldn't inherently mean that – you know, we weren't necessarily making the right decisions, it would just mean that the society was set up in a way that would be advantageous to that. But to the point about this broader debate, if, if my, the reason, the question I always ask is if the Chinese are so wise, then why is it that they mishandled the Trump presidency so badly? If you're playing a long-term game, if your goal is to supplant the US as the global hegemon superpower by, the 20, by 2100, why would you start cracking down on Hong Kong now? Why would you be doing an, like a crackdown on Uyghurs? Why would you be challenging the things of Taiwan? Those are the sort of short-sighted decisions that suggest to me that actually it turns out they're not as sort of supposedly wise as this sort of Orientalist framework would suggest. What do you think? Yeah,
1: I'm glad you brought that up. It's so true. I'm like, guys, it's only a function of their political system. Like, yeah, obviously, when you have a 10-year politburo that doesn't change, then yeah, it's pretty easy to have long-term planning. But look, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's funny, I'll give you guys an anecdote here, but whenever I interviewed Trump once, I asked him, I was like, what do you think historians are going to remember you for in a hundred years? And he was like, veteran's choice. And he started, <laughs> and I was like- so I can, Wait, what is, can you tell them what veteran's yeah, choice is? First of is, all, veteran's choice is about healthcare. I'm not going to, it's not a bad policy. It's just like helping vets, you know, be able to choose private healthcare. Anyway, I was, and I remember thinking, I was sitting in the Oval Office and I had my, I had my eyes on- The Andrew Jackson portrait that Trump has hanging in the White House. And I was like, you know, sir, that's probably not it. Like, it's just not. And it's like you just said, when historians are going to write the history of Trump and not the Trump era, I'm saying of Trump, like when we think back on him, almost like a Lincoln like figure, what is it going to be? It's going to be a shattering of political and economic norms in the year 2016 of his entree to office, and it is going to be the way he talked about China and ushered in a bipartisan general consensus that the way the U.S. relationship with China is currently conducted is, on balance, very bad for the United States. There's a whole host of debates on trade, on tech, on so many different things about what we do about it, but things start from that presumption only because of Donald Trump. He will always deserve and need credit for that. And I think it's actually important, as you put it in your question, limo beans, to think in terms of long-term strategic value, which is that what and how is the conversation about China gonna shift because of Trump's presidency? It's now going to be a debate about what level that we ramp up. What level do we have competition? What level do we push back in this area or that area? And I think that that is such an interesting and important thing. So I would push back again a little bit on your premise that, yes, there has been nearsightedness almost for 40 years. The elites of this country know they can't just sit on their hands and do nothing. I'm not saying they're not going to do the bare minimum and still try to get rich off of their China policy. But I am saying they have to at least affect. And when somebody has to at least affect something, it leaves an opening for people like us to push some legitimate policy. So that's kind of how I would look at that one. What's next, Marshall?
0: This is a short and sweet one. Uh, Hondras TR, if Tulsi Gabbard ran in the Republican Party, would you vote for her?
1: I think it's a funny question, Andres. You know, I get this. We get these types of questions all the time. They're like, well, what if this Democrat was a Republican? Look. In terms of crossover appeal, there are still some things that we're always going to disagree with on Tulsi Gabbard. So it would always depend on who else is within that primary. Now, I've always said, you know, one of the interesting things about Tulsi was her massive crossover support amongst Democrats and Republicans, especially in states like New Hampshire and elsewhere. What... I would challenge you to do is not try to transpose one candidate onto another party and say, well, if this candidate was so-and-so, like, many people would vote for them. No, usually there's a reason that these people are in the parties that they are. Social policy, you know, economic policy, war policy. Like, just because you agree with somebody on war policy doesn't mean that you're going to vote for that person on something else. What, again, what I would say is try to look at what some of the underlying crossover issues are, Because those are usually the areas through which the 100 million people who don't vote are disproportionately not represented, and then try and bring that within your own party. What do you say, Marshall?
0: Yeah, the key thing here is that other than on defense policy, there was talk about people trying to make uh, Tulsi Gabbard Trump's secretary of defense. Other than basically skepticism of foreign intervention, and I'm not going to say— Let's just, let's. I'm trying to put this down, let's just say that she isn't, she shares Trump's lack of skepticism with authoritarian regimes in the sense that she doesn't prioritize human rights concerns and values concerns in the way sort of like the Bush administration sort of did. Other than those agreement issue areas, like Tulsi Gabbard's a sort of heterodox Democrat, right? She's pro-choice. She was pro-Medicare for all. The thing that I think Republicans like about Tulsi is that aesthetically, however, she is very Republican because she actually used to be. So, this is the key thing about her background. Tulsi used to be against gay marriage. She was pro-life. She was sort of, this was during sort of the pre-9-11 era. So I think she's retained her very sort of Republican aesthetic in a way that I think reads well. So if like you sort of imagine turning off the volume during a presidential debate, I think a million trillion Republicans would vote for her. But the second you sort of turned up the actual contradictions, you'd have a huge issue there.
1: So next question. Next question from Jack. You talk a lot about China. I'm curious about specifics. Under what terms should the U.S. renegotiate a trade with China? What actionably should we do about Xinjiang? How to preserve maritime borders without escalating armed conflict? Do we need a Cold War-style mirror to the Belt and Road? Even if you openly talk about being tough on China, what are the specific steps and specific limits to do that? I think it's a great question. What do you say, Marshall?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I'll preface it with, once again, not a policy expert. I talk to policy experts, but so... My greatest value add, I think, is with framing. So with the specifics here, I don't think the sheer debate right now is literally what terms with China are going to sort of be. That's sort of a very post-2016 issue. Um, So for example, there's a lot of debate about whether a Joe Biden administration would even really tear, pull back Um, tariffs on China without extracting massive concessions because now that they're sort of there, it's a leverage point. So for me, the debate on trade of China is really about what our relationship towards China look like. So if you go back into our earlier episodes, something Sagar and I talk a lot about is, well, our economies are far too tied together. So for example, we are far too reliant on the Chinese economy for a variety of essential goods that we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic really at its height. So the priority I would have there is decoupling us so that we can have good priorities there. We're a little less concerned with the literal level of the tariffs that we sort of have. And moving on to sort of a broader sort of issues there, the real thing with, uh, you know, with with the Uyghurs and everything, I really think is, look, I don't think anyone pretends there's anything that can literally be done about the Uyghur problem, right? No one is seriously proposing regime change in China, which is what you'd literally have to do to make that exact problem go away. Same thing with Hong Kong. What people are sort of talking about is drawing lines. So, for example, Disney should not be filming things. In that province. McKinsey should not have its big annual retreat in that province. The NBA should not buy products that are made in that sort of area. So there are these very specific things that we can do that will actually neutralize that. And the thing to remember here too is that think about what happened with the Soviet Union. Regardless of the debate about the Cold War, there was never any sort of attempt to literally overthrow like the Soviet Union. But the key though during that relationship was setting lines, saying, no, we're not going to give up Berlin. No, like we're gonna draw a line between North and South Korea, those are the things that matter the most for us. What about you?
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Look, I mean, I'm not an international trade expert or a maritime expert. I, I, Like we said, we have talked to many of those people. I think there's a lot of interesting ideas out there. It's about policy and it's about framework. So the framework that we should look at through China is, yeah, we should say that the current U.S. relationship with China is bad. In terms of renegotiating, we should have less reliance. What does that mean? I'm going to leave that to Robert Lighthizer to know the exact percentages of different— Sorry, he's a U.S. ambassador for trade representative under the Trump administration. They can decide what the exact levels of U.S. industry, which can allow Chinese penetration— personally, I would like that to be zero. That's my negotiating position. Um, I'm willing to discuss uh, if they'd like to revise that higher. But— in terms of what you do about Xinjiang, it's the same thing. And I'm actually glad we get to address this, because there are all these incredibly annoying leftist types out there who think that if you acknowledge genocide in Xinjiang against Uyghur Muslims, that you want regime change. No, I don't want regime change in China. Nobody wants regime change in China, especially armed insurrection against China funded by the United States. Absolutely not. But it's like you just said, Marshall. It's just about saying, no, U.S. corporations, you can't do business with companies that are based out of there or benefit from slave labor, like Nike or like the NBA. That's why in the United States, I thought it was great whenever we just banned products, cotton products that come from Xinjiang province or Disney. I think Disney should probably have to forfeit some of its profits from Mulan and should be fined under Export Control Act of the United States, which says that U.S. companies shouldn't be doing business with those types of people. I don't, Think there's anything wrong with that. So you don't have to be a Chinese Uyghur apologist or you're in favor of regime change. So that's really where it comes down to. It's about gradations, and it's about acknowledging the fact we can rebalance our relationship with China. There are a lot of very rich people on Wall Street who want to tell you that that would be an economic catastrophe. What they're really saying is it would be an economic catastrophe for them. There are also a lot of suppliers and cotton suppliers out there who are saying, yeah, but do Americans want to pay 0.05% more for a t-shirt? Yeah, I actually do think if you were to ask Americans whether 0.05% increase in a t-shirt, not that it is that. I'm just pulling these numbers out. Well, knowing that they're not buying products literally made with slave labor, they would say yes. And they would especially say yes if it turned out that the native t-shirt industry was actually quite useful in the middle of a pandemic or anything else. You can begin to see what I'm getting at here, which is it's all about bringing back our own national capacity. I'm not saying it's going to come back exactly the same way it was, but about redeveloping, redefining our posture with China that's what the long-term project over, I think, the next 30 years is going to have to look like.
0: So for our last question, this is slightly long, but it's a very good question. And I, I really thank you, Andrew, for asking this because it shows that you were listening to our last episode of Rachel and the point came across. So question. Based on the interview of Rachel Bovard, it seemed to me as though there are some conservatives who want cultural autonomy within their own community and want to avoid overbearing laws. So, for example, he's talking about how Rachel was attacking the fact that Catholic hospitals were being required to provide certain services that go against their religious beliefs. So, back to the question, as a Bernadista... I am, not, I am not committed to dying on the hill of universalizing left liberal social norms if I can get worker protections out of a deal. So here's my question. Are conservatives actually interested in protections in terms of cultural relativity, which would also logically apply to other cultures? So for example, he's saying if the conservatives want Catholics to have protections, whether you be fine with immigrants, tribes, would they allow and respect Sharia law orientations in some neighborhoods or the rational expansion of tribal sovereignty over sacred sites if it means that business can operate without danger of being harassed by unreasonable anti-discrimination laws? In short, do most conservatives actually want to live in the plurinational states of America or the conservative Christian states of America? Um, seriously, Andrew, you hit a bunch of different landmines here. Um, but seriously, props. Sagar... I made you answer this one first for a reason.
1: uh, Andrew, you stepped on a lot of landmines there, my friend, Mr. Bernadista. I think it's a fantastic question. And what you're actually pointing to is, no, you're right, which is, look, there actually was a large segment of the religious right, which did want to live in the conservative Christian states of America throughout the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s. What I would say is, as you point to, is that left liberal social norms have kind of become the new kind of successor ideology, which is what... Our friend Wesley Yang kind of describes it to to impose a universalist left liberal social agenda upon all people. So do conservatives actually want to live in the plurinational states of America? I don't know. I definitely do. I can really only speak for the two of us. And I think that in general, the only way that we can live in a country of 330 million people with people of different religious race and creed is we're going to have to have some level of legal and community respect for different institutions and for different religions and for different people here in the U.S. Everything is about balance. You're correct. And many people on the left are correct, which is that, Things were dramatically balanced in favor of the religious right not that long ago. But they're incorrect when they assume that things are not dramatically balanced against the religious right in the year 2020. What we need is to restore a country where it's okay to be religious, it's okay to be irreligious, where you can live together and solve public policy problems through norms. Because I think right now is that many people on the left actually adopted strategy of many people on the religious right by trying to crush and destroy their enemies. And I would say to both groups is that it always backfires and it doesn't work out. What do you say, Marshall? Yeah, we'll
0: continue our Michael Lind shell strategy. And one of my favorite parts in this book, The New Class was is this articulation of the idea that there are no actual victories in politics. And if you look at the sort of language that both sides have used at sort of the height of their own cultural hubris, it's literally, it's been this idea that you can win. It's this idea in 2004 that Republicans could pass a constitutional amendment banning gay marriage, and that would be the end of the debate. And I think in many ways you see the same thing with, for example, these protection issues here. Um, so you've added a lot of it, Sagar, so the two things I'll add here is first, I want to pull out this idea of yours, Mr. Bernadista, that if you make these social concessions, you would get worker protections out of the deal. That's actually just like not true right now. And this is where, once again, we're being fair here. I think we're pretty balanced and not not being partisan. I don't think a lot of Republicans have any sort of conception of the idea that they have to give something up too. So I don't think if you sort of look sort of your average center right to conservative member of the House, they would not even comprehend the idea that you're basically saying, which is that, hey, look, we're fine if we sort of have this sort of pluralistic idea of respecting different spheres. But just so you know, like we think that there should be higher rates of unionization or we should. Shouldn't have, um, you know, sort of right to work laws. That's not on the table in any way whatsoever. So the number one thing that I really hate, and this happens so much on Twitter, I'm not going to name names, but there's a couple of people who are very aggressive about saying, Marshall, Sager, insert Republican, did something that I don't like. You guys (laughs) promised me that it's not going to happen. So what's the deal? It's like, guys, like. (laughs) I will continue to say this, Sarah will continue to say this, we are talking about the idea of something. You should not listen to this podcast and think that like Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton or Marco Rubio are these like perfect human beings who are going to do whatever you sort of can do. What we are trying to do with this podcast is create a space where people like a Bernie Sanders listener can listen and can say, hey, I should be sympathetic to Rachel Boeber to think about how we can live together in a country. Do not think that we're making any claims about what American politics are today well, we're we're sort of trying to do is think of what they could be 10 years from now. Um, so these were a lot of really great questions, guys. Thank you so much. Please keep them coming. We have a bunch more that we'll answer in our individual episodes going forward, so I will take us out. Thank you so much to the Lincoln Network, of course, for sponsoring this podcast. Check out the Reboot and I'll both be there, and we will see you on
1: Thursday. We'll see you guys on Thursday. Just don't forget to scroll to the bottom of that Apple Podcast app and hit five stars really helps other people find the show. See you guys later.